because it's kind of like a sales thing almost because it's so competitive. You got to get that person on the phone. Once you have them on the phone, that is your opportunity to hook them, right? So we're in sales too, essentially, when you're a recruiter, like you got to sell the company that they're going to work for. Welcome to the Gas Compression Podcast. This is the only podcast out there for professionals working in the gas compression industry. Each week, we'll be bringing you interviews and discussions with some of the leaders in the industry to discuss the latest trends and what the future holds. If you're working in the gas compression industry and have always wanted to sit down with the leaders in our field to pick their brain, this show is your chance. This episode is sponsored by Gas Compression Magazine. Published monthly, Gas Compression Magazine provides in-depth coverage of the products, systems, technologies, and news that affect the global gas compression industry. Available in print and digital delivery, subscribe for free at www.gascompressionmagazine.com. Well, hello and welcome back to the Gas Compression Podcast. Excited to have Michelle Blevins with me. She is the owner and publisher of CNR Magazine. We're continuing our series in what we're calling a blue-collar skilled trade labor force discussion. One of the things that comes up in my podcast a lot is the idea that there's just not a lot of young men and women coming up to replace the older generation who's retiring. So we're losing all of this knowledge and skilled labor, but who's coming up to replace it? We know that the trades are experiencing a shortage. And so the price that we're paying for those trades and that skilled labor is going up, but still not a lot of people fill in those gaps. And so although Michelle's not in our industry, of course, she is in the cleaning and restoration industry and writes articles and, and runs that magazine. So excited to get some perspective on that. So just a quick background, Michelle, you were born in the state of Texas, but you've been in the Detroit area. So how did you end up in the cleaning and restoration publishing business? Uh, well, first, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here, Michael. So thank you very much. Hopefully I have some value to share here. But I ended up in cleaning and restoration by just replying to an ad on Indeed that this magazine, it was called R&R, a different magazine in our industry needed an editor-in-chief. And I thought I was in TV news at the time. And at the time, I thought, huh, that sounds interesting. I've been to a lot of fires and floods and things like that. But I had no idea what happened after the news crews left, after the fire departments left, you know, so it was still that emergency response kind of realm. And so I applied for it and interviewed for it. I got asked during the interview, now this is an industry full of men. Do you think you can handle it? How's that going to go for you? And I walked out thinking there was no way that I was going to get it, but I did. And so I, I'll be, it'll be seven years in the industry this spring. And I, I love it. It's an industry full of great people. I love the trades grew up with a dad in the trades and, you know, other entrepreneurs in my family and extended family. So it's been a joy to be here. I love this industry and I can't imagine leaving. Awesome. Well, our industry is definitely, you know, what we would call blue collar skilled trades in the mechanical and operational aspect of gas compression. So what insights do you have for your side of the computer screen or the, the microphone there? So as far as people in the cleaning and restoration business, are you guys seeing a, a shortage? Is it hard to find people to come in and, and work in this industry? What are you seeing? It's really difficult. I guess I don't know what the day-to-day -day looks like in gas compression, but in the restoration industry, if you're coming in at the technician level, you're expected to work 24-7. This is a 24-7 business. You might be asked to go into a crawl space filled with spiders. You might be asked to go into a 
basement filled with sewage, you know, you're going into a burned out house and all of the toxins and stuff that can be in there. And so finding people that are willing to do those things when you could go work at Home Depot or Sam's Club, right, for a pretty good wage and normal hours and benefits, that is tough. And so the restoration industry definitely is facing that. And there are some things going on in the industry where we're also like your industry, trying to bring people in, trying to overcome that. So we can dive into that a little bit if you want. I don't want to just like run away with the conversation, but there's definitely some different things happening in the restoration industry because everybody knows that this is a problem. So hopefully we can work together as an industry to overcome some of those. Well, yeah, I want to go right where you were about to go is what are you doing in your industry to combat that? I know that, you know, I'm in Amarillo and we're opening up an Amazon facility here pretty soon. Yeah. And I heard what their starting wages were, but I couldn't remember. And yeah, it's kind of like, do you want to pay someone a pretty good wage to stand there and scan something or do something with your hands, build something, stand back and say, look, I did that. So yeah. what are you guys doing in your industry to attract that, to promote that? Well, I think the foundation is culture, right? I think a lot of people talk a lot about culture, but I think you have to be a destination where people want to work. So there are some guys in the industry who also have a podcast in the restoration industry, Blue Collar Nation, but they also owned a restoration company until recently. And they tell stories about they had created such a great environment of training and coaching and connecting personally with their guys that they had a competitor come and say, we will pay you all many times more than you were making now. Bring your whole team over. We'll hire all of you. And a majority of the people stayed for less money at the restoration company that they were working at because they knew that the owners cared. They were invested. It didn't come down to the dollars and cents. And I think that is very true overall, that it's not all about what you're getting paid. It's about like, how much value does your company find in you? What kind of stepping stones do you have in your company? I think there's a gap in people not realizing that there are careers and paths in the trades, right? It's not like you're just going to go in at a technician and you have to stay there. I mean, you can work your way up. The sky's the limit. I know people who have started a technician and now run an entire large restoration company and everything in between. And I'm sure it's the same in your industry. If you're into marketing, well, restoration companies, I'm sure gas compression companies need marketing people. They need salespeople. They need general managers. Some of the best general managers I've met in this industry didn't have restoration experience. They came from outside of the industry. And so I think kind of going along with the culture bit, which this is a little cliche, but you have to do that whole hire for character and train for skill. Like there are some really, really solid people that I know restoration companies have taken a chance on and hired from outside the industry based on their character and how they match up with that culture's values. And they are rock stars for those companies because they took a chance and hired somebody from outside the industry and weren't pigeonhole focused on certain expertise or whatever. So kind of going further into this conversation, do you guys have some things in your industry that are like, people pretty much are like, if you don't have that skill, I'm not going to hire you. It is. It's a real tricky thing because I guess it's the chicken or the egg thing. You know, you may take someone who's very, very green or, or unskilled and start to train them, but then, oh, what if the competitor hires them? I know in, uh, you know, that's a big thing in our area, mechanics. I'm in the machine shop business, but our audience is the gas compression companies. And so especially in the Midland Odessa area, the Permian Basin, you hear these stories of, of mechanics making $35, $40 an hour but we'll go to a competitor for a couple more dollars an hour. 
And so, oh, is it because the company culture is not strong enough? Is that why? Is that kind of what you're alluding to? I was actually going to go a different direction, but yes, I think that culture does have a lot to do with it. And are you making it a place that people want to stay? A few dollars an hour isn't going to be a life-changing decision, right? Like that's really not going to make a big change in your life. But if somebody's working for a company where they know that they are valued and can move up and whatever, that could entice somebody to stay where they are. You know, devil you do versus the devil you don't kind of thing. Right. But so I also was a recruiter, a chief recruiter in the restaurant for four and a half years until I bought this magazine over the summer. and. Something that I learned, which is why I asked you that question, something I learned is that in our industry, a lot of contractors are really, really hyper-focused on only wanting to hire people that know this very specific software program in our industry, right? (laughs) You're nodding, rolling your eyes kind of thing, right? People can be trained on that. So that's more where I tried to encourage people to ask the right questions. So maybe you're finding somebody that has some basic construction knowledge or something like that, maybe not restoration specific, and then find out if they're tech savvy. How tech savvy are you? What kind of apps are you using every day? What are your favorite computer programs? Tell me, like rate your Excel knowledge on a scale of one to 10, you know, like dive into that and find out how tech savvy they are. And if they're tech savvy, you can probably teach them whatever software it is. In our industry, it's called Xactimate and is used for all estimating for property damage restoration pretty much. And it's complex and it's not, it can be taught (laughs) and there are training classes for it. And I'm guessing that your industry is the same. If there's something that needs to be learned, there are also probably places you can send your hires to get trained if you don't have time to train them. And sometimes you, well, almost all the time, you'll find somebody sooner that has like the basic skills that can be taught than somebody that has like Xactimate piece. And you're running the risk of hiring somebody if you're that pigeonholed that might be bringing in bad habits. Whereas training somebody fresh, they might have a good perspective. So... Did the cleaning and restoration business during COVID and the great resignation, did that affect your industry at all? No, I don't think that that had a big impact. During the pandemic, this industry was like really sought after, became the essential workers. This industry was essential workers. And so companies were kind of revamping and doing disinfection in schools and hospitals and like businesses and everywhere. So this industry like ramped way up at the start of the pandemic. And now that we're kind of entering this environment of cleaning for health and people like understanding how important it is to clean and disinfect, that's still a big part of the industry, kind of a resurgence of that cleaning aspect that the industry has always had. So I don't think that I've, not that I, there has not been a lot of people leaving, but it is with inflation and the labor shortage and all of that, the costs of getting people like you were saying is, tremendous. And so everybody, there are a lot of companies turning away work at this point because it's like, we don't have the people for this. So it's it's really tough. One of the things that I'm involved in now that was something unique that another company in our industry thought of, it's a, a software company, but they're doing a survey of the entire industry, technician and like project manager level type people, admins, those kinds of things. And it's, it's just a 15-minute survey, but a lot of it is open-ended questions trying to f- explore and dig into the strengths and the weaknesses that restoration companies have and trying to then evaluate all of that data and turn it into action steps that we as an entire industry can take to try to overcome this shortage. You know, probably like you, a lot of companies do job fairs and things like that. That's pretty common. There's now um, a training academy in our industry that is trying to be like the in between the restoration company and high schools or trade schools or people trying to find 
their niche, right? And so it's the the Painting and Disaster Restoration Academy. And so they are kind of going into high schools and trade schools, helping train people on the OSHA aspects and things like that. And then partnering with restoration companies to literally place people in once they've already been trained for those skills. So that's kind of an interesting thing that's come out of this. Do you have any insights you can share from your recruiting days for, you know, I'm in the machine shop business. Most of our listeners are in the gas compression industry. So they may be mechanics or supervisors looking to recruit mechanics. Do you have any insight on what works and what doesn't work when you're reaching out to a younger generation and trying to get them involved? Sure. I would say you have to respond immediately. Like if you have an ad on Indeed or Career Builder and somebody responds and they're interested and applies, don't wait a week to respond to them. They just did it. If you see that email come in, it takes, you know, 30 seconds for you to just respond and be like, "Hey Michael, thank you so much for your application. I would love to set up a time to chat with you just 20 to 30 minutes of your time. Let me know what works for you in the next few days." It can be something that quick and simple. So our process because it was a recruiting company was sourcing and, and connecting with people when they would respond, setting up a screening. And I always try to like reiterate, I just need 20 minutes of your time because it's kind of like a sales thing almost because it's so competitive. You got to get that person on the phone. Once you have them on the phone, that is your opportunity to hook them, right? So we're in sales too, essentially, when you're a recruiter, like you got to sell the company that they're going to work for and you have to get them on the phone. And the other interesting thing with Indeed or those platforms is they're applying for so many places at once. Like they're just oftentimes going click, 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 click. So when you reach back out, they're like, I have no idea who you are. I don't remember applying for that at all. So you really got to like get in there and get them on the phone. And then you can share about the company and the opportunity and ask those preliminary questions. And something else that's important is like, don't don't then just wait two weeks to reach back out to them. You have to keep the process moving. If you don't, they're going to get hired by somebody else. I just went through that with somebody who's like an executive level in the restoration industry, which that's a big shortage in our industry too. Maybe it is in yours, finding people that are even willing to leave their current companies in restoration because on that level, you sometimes need more experience. There are not many people at the executive and management level either, but I had helped this person get connected with multiple big companies in the industry through my contacts. And a lot of those companies like talked to this person and really liked the person, but then dragged their feet and she ended up going somewhere else. So I know that there are budgets to consider and money to consider, but if also keep in mind that if you find somebody you really like, please don't tell them if you have the money there, please don't tell them, oh, we're going to wait till Q1 to hire them. They're going to be gone. Speaking of money, let me ask you a question. How important in your experience is money versus culture or money versus an opportunity or a clear pathway up through the organization. So our candidates saying, hi, how much per hour? Or what are you going to pay me? Or is it more like, hey, is there an opportunity for me to move up here? What's the culture like? What's your experience with that? I think it's both. I think it depends on the candidate. And that's kind of just part of getting to know who you're hiring and who you're dealing with. And everybody wants something different. You know, somebody's going to be thrilled that if at their yearly review, you throw them a one or two dollar raise. And there are other people that are going to get to their yearly review and be like, I don't care what I make. I'm tired of being at this level. When do I get to move up? Right. So you just need to know that. I know pay is not everything. I gave that example earlier, but I know of another company in the industry that they have a cleaning side and a restoration side. And like they put together goodie bags for their employees and do different things, just even little to show them that they care and do giveaways for like 
$100 gas cards and those kinds of things. And are just constantly, even those little drops here and there can really, really go a long way. There are some others that are getting more forward thinking. There's a company in California that you can get massages, free massages every month as part of your benefits package. You know, everybody's different. What everybody wants is different, but pay is not everything. I had candidates go for positions where they were making less money if they knew that the company was going to be good. And a lot of that was the recruiter candidate relationship and making sure that I was staying engaged with them as well. And then selling the company that I was working for. But I was also picky. I only actually would work with companies where I truly believed in their culture and who they were and how they were going to treat their people. Because I didn't want to place somebody in a company that I wouldn't want to work for. I had a guy on, his name's Ken Rusk. He wrote a book. It's called Blue Collar Cash. Really cool story and a great book. He told me about this story about going into a Burger King and seeing this, like a a roll-up thing. It was like six Mm -hmm. feet tall that showed, you know, hey, we're hiring for burger flippers for eight bucks an hour, but here's the path to general manager and running a Burger King one day. Have you seen that done well in your industry? That's something that it spurred me on to think of how to do that. Have you seen anything like that? Or in the cleaning and restoration industry, is there things you can point to that say that other companies can use to say, hey, come in as someone, like you said, crawling in into basements and and flooded basements with spiders, but Mm -hmm. here's your path to the top. Have you seen that done well? I have not seen anything tangible. All I know of is it coming from conversations and telling people about those opportunities at the beginning of the conversation, positions they see opening up or also even just setting goals. Like, hey, if you reach $500,000 in sales or whatever, then yeah, let's talk about like, I saw that a lot with like project managers and stuff like that. Like, okay, we'll hire you in and we'll pay you X until you reach so many jobs and then let's reevaluate, see where you're at. Let's see if we can move you up, like setting crystal clear goals of what they have to achieve. Same thing, like with that software that I was talking about, this isn't so much career path, I guess this is more back to the money, but Hey, we'll hire you in at 50 grand to make it a nice round number. But then once you get your Xactimate certification, we'll up that to to 52.5. And then once you do X, we'll up it to 55 or, you know, things like that. So they're incentivized as well to get that training and show that you're also invested and you've made an initial commitment in them. So I also have seen really good candidates walk away because they were lowballed. So money does, does matter and you have to keep up on the market. And, you know, I would say in restoration, I, again, don't know what it's like in your industry, but there are positions that are paying easily 10 to $15,000 more in base now than they were just a year or two ago, easily. So you really have to pay attention. Something that I have seen that I thought was awesome on this kind of recruiting arm is there's, I met a company in Florida in November that they had business cards made up. And it said it was to give out, like if you have an awesome waitress or server or really good customer service somewhere, all of their team carries these cards that say, hey, thanks for the amazing service today. I would love to talk to you more about maybe taking a step in a different direction in your career. I can't remember the language. I have it shared on our Facebook page, but, and so it was like front and backside and just like, Hey, you're awesome. We'd love you on our team. Here's how to reach out to us. So I think you always have to be recruiting. I love to tell the story. I was at a conference in Austin, Texas this past summer, and I was in the bathroom and there was a janitor in there cleaning the bathroom. And as I was coming out, washing my hands, he was like, Hey, what's this conference? He had pretty broken English. He was asking me like, Hey, what's this conference about? Who are these people? What's going on? And he was really, really interested. And this guy was 
clearly working hard. Like he was sweating and really working hard. Everything was immaculate, like, you know, really cared. I could tell. And um, so I was explaining it to him and he was like, oh, well, well, are they hiring? Do they have open jobs? And I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh, wait here. So I like ran out back to the trade show and found an owner of a restoration company in Austin and grabbed the owner's business card and was like, I might have somebody for you. I didn't know if they were hiring. Everybody is. So I just was like, I have somebody for you and ran back and gave the gentleman, the business card and told him the window of time to call the owner that the owner was expecting his call. And you have to always be recruiting. And the second you see an opportunity or somebody that has good crossover skills, talk to them. Don't pass it by. Do you have any insight for people that are in the trades, let's say mechanics, machinists that are working, but the culture maybe isn't awesome, but they're trying to, you know, they've got a boss who has a boss, who has a boss, who has a boss, big, big company. Do you have any insight on what they could particularly do or go to their boss and say, hey, I heard some things. I'd love to start implementing these in an effort to try to get some more talent coming in to try to create that change when they really don't have the authority to do it. It's always a great idea to go and bring ideas to the table, right? Hopefully, even if the culture isn't the best, hopefully at least there's an open culture enough that you can approach and be like, hey, I have this idea. Can I run with it? And I would think any company would be crazy to be like, no, you like you have an idea of how to hire people. Great. Let's go. So I don't know that I have any tips or advice, but I would say go for it. If you have ideas or you think that there are ways that the culture can improve in your company, go for it. And you know, there are ways that no matter what authority you have, you can help increase the culture, right? Just through kindness and caring about your coworkers and whatever that may be. So that's not going to change all of it, but I think how you relate to other people and making sure that you are reflecting your values and not the values of the company. My husband doesn't have necessarily the best culture where he works, but he tries every day to go in and be the person who's kind and not bring that negativity home or into himself or whatever. And that can be really tough to do, but it can also make a big difference. You know, lately he started getting more comments from people of like, thanks for being so nice. Thanks for checking in on me. And so people who kind of take it upon themselves to be kind, show that they care about others. That can go a long way too by itself. So where do you think we're headed in the next 5, 10, 15 years? Like you said, I think a lot of the blue collar industries, yours, mine, we are what we call essential workers. We're the ones that can be outsourced. You can't buy what we do on Amazon. These are services that have to be provided by human beings with a brain and a pair of hands and a good work ethic. In my opinion, it seems like we're just continuing to head upwards in that direction. How do you feel like we're headed in the blue collar industries for the next 10 years? I think it's going to be tough. You know, we also went through my generation and yours of being told you have to go to college. That's how you get a good career, which is not true. Like, gosh, you can get a really good career and make good money in the trades um, and not have the student loan debt and all of that. So I think that kind of stuff just really needs to be preached and reiterated to all of these generations that are coming up, snag people for internships, get out there to job fairs, do what you can to be front and center in your community. So people are seeing your company and what it's about and getting curious and wanting to know more. And I don't know what the magic solution is. I think it's going to get harder before it gets easier. I'm hoping in our industry that the survey that's coming out will maybe help us figure out what direction we should go. But it is really tough, especially now that with the great resignation, people are figuring out, hey, I can have a career from home and hey, I can freelance and charge people whatever I want and work whatever hours I want. And 
I think there will always be those people out there though, that want a paycheck Mm -hmm. and they don't want to have to do it themselves. They like going into work. They need to go into work. They like the camaraderie and stuff like that. And so it's just going to be that continuing to connect with the right people. And I'm hoping I've heard multiple people say they think that there's going to be a swing back in the other direction where, you know, people have exited kind of corporate America and office settings and stuff like that. I've heard a lot of people say it will probably swing back the other way. It's pretty unlikely that we're all going to stay so pigeonholed, whatever, in our own home offices or whatever. Eventually, it's all going to swing back and people are going to get used to being in kind of the more group setting. And hopefully when that happens, that will also help and get people thinking about making a change or, hey, if I have to do this, I could work in another industry or whatever. But I don't know. Well, I'm encouraging our, our industry has a magazine called the Gas Compression Magazine. And they just came out with an industry survey. I talked with the publisher last week about it. And it's always good because people in your industry will be optimistic about your industry. One of the questions he always asks was, where do you think like spending just the overall direction of the gas industry going to be coming in 2022? And you know, 76% said it's going to be better than it was last year. And he was just pointing out that every year it says that whether it's a boom year or bust year or whatever, it's like, you know, so... I encourage you that when your results come in, it's always encouraging because at the end of the day, you know, we're all kind of in this thing together and we're all you and I and and leaders in this industry are always going to be positive and thinking forward. So man, I really appreciate your insight from a, I'd call it a sister industry, right? We're not doing the same thing, but we sort of are, we're doing things with our hands. We're getting dirty. We're, we're doing what needs to be done. And these jobs aren't going away. They're going to pay more. Like you said, I think there's lots of tangible things, mostly revolving around culture. It is our job in in the industry to show everyone that this is a meaningful job, that this is something worth doing, doing things with your hands, standing back and saying, oh, look what I did today. Those things are very, very important and fulfilling. And so that will beat out a job standing in an Amazon factory any day, I think. I totally agree. Our industry is busy now with the tornadoes in Kentucky and all of that. And so there's so many opportunities in the trades and I would tell anybody go for it. Awesome. Well, Michelle, thanks for coming on. The best of luck to you and I look forward to maybe talking to you again. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gas Compression Podcast. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at gascompressionpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is sponsored by Gas Compression Magazine. Published monthly, Gas Compression Magazine provides in-depth coverage of the products, systems, technologies, and news that affect the global gas compression industry. Available in print and digital delivery, subscribe for free at www.gascompressionmagazine.com.